We're doing a series called Reclaiming Repentance. And the reason why we're going through this series is because much of what is touted as repentance is not repentance as the Bible understands it. The Bible seems pretty clear that it's communicating that something takes place in the mind that causes it to change. For some people, it might just be simply thinking differently about something. For some, it's a complete paradigm shift. There are some things we come across in the Word of God where we think, I've never thought that way before, but now that I see it, and now that I know that God has communicated it, I have to move forward differently. And to go back in the same way would be a hypocrite at best. I'm thankful when the Word of God does that, when it changes us. Because what it shows is, is it's not just molding the mind or flipping the mind in something that it believes, but it's also molding the heart. It's not just meant to stay in the attic. It's meant to get down into the basement as well. So we're going through this, and it's important to see that we're in the epistle of Hebrews. There's a couple of instances where repentance takes place. We are actually going to be spending today filling out more of what we saw last week. We have Dr. Warren Lamb coming to speak next uh, Sunday. Uh, he'll be here for the conference over the weekend, which is free, by the way. So please go to the website, sign up for free. It's going to be a great conference. It's not going to take up too much of your time. I think you're going to benefit greatly from it, uh, but, but it is free. And then after that, we will actually pick this back up and finish it out uh, to show why the writer of Hebrews is saying what he's saying. I'm hoping that we'll start to get familiar with these pictures and what they represent. When we talk about what it is to look at the forest of Scripture, we're talking about a book as a whole. And one of the most important things we can know when we go to study a book or to study one passage in particular is back up and say, how does this work with the entire book? Um, one of the projects that Isaiah is working on now, where is he? Did he go home? Oh, there he is. Hey, how's it going? Um, one of the passages that he's working on right now is, is First, First Thessalonians 4 and into 5. And one thing that we've been talking about over the past week is, what's the whole book about? Could you tell me in a sentence or two what the entire book is about and how the passage that you're focusing in on fits within the mold of all the book? Somebody that can tell you that understands what the author was meaning whenever they wrote that passage. And that's what you want. You want to have the understanding that the author have. What is Hebrews about? Hebrews is a book that was written by someone that we don't know. But the thrust of the book seems to be from all the evidence that's put there, that you have a group of Christians who have come out of a former past in Judaism. And so they have this heavily Jewish background. And they're in a situation where they've got new life in Christ, but because of persecution that's coming their way, they're thinking about giving up. It's their Christianity that is calling them to account. And so instead of them getting knocked around and robbed and hurt and and, and whatever else is going on, they're saying, you know what? When we were into Judaism, it wasn't that bad. Maybe we should go back. We could probably really avoid a lot of problems if we could just step back into that realm. And so the author of Hebrews goes through and brings up all of these major mileposts of Judaism and says, you know, Moses was great. But Christ is greater. The law was meant to guide, but only grace can save. And begins setting up these contrasts. 
to show them that whatever they're going back to is lesser than. And Jesus Christ is always greater than. But then we get real uncomfortable when we're reading through the book. And here's the reason why. Because you deal with five passages that have caused people problems ever since they were put on paper. And they're known as the warning passages of Hebrews. And just to look at them real quick and think of it. You can write these down if you want. You can find it later on the, on the live stream. So you'll have a little bit more time to spend with it. You know, probably the best thing about the live stream is you can pause me talking. That's probably the best thing, right? <clears throat> Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. There's a warning about neglecting the so great salvation that we have. A lot of people think that's going to heaven when you die. I tell you that it's not. That's not what Hebrews is concerned about. It's, it's concerned with pressing on, moving forward, maturing. You have a large section from chapter 3 and 4 that's telling us, that's calling us, strive to enter the rest that God has provided. And he uses the Old Testament imagery in order to talk about why that would matter for the New Testament church. What we're dealing with right now is the danger of falling away from the faith. What does that look like? And why would that be concerning? What is the author trying to get at with that? In chapter 10, a large section talking about that there's no sacrifice available for people who are willfully sinning. Good grief, how does that affect the Christian? You know, how many of our sins are accidents and how many of them are like, yeah, I think I'll just do this. Something to, something to weigh out. Does everybody see why this would cause tension and problem with Christians over the years? A lot of it. A lot of debate surrounding this. The last one is the fact that if we have a root of bitterness, it brings us short of the grace of God. Well, good grief, what in the world does that look like? It's a scary instance. What does he do? He goes back and talks about the problem with Cain and why that would matter. Why his life situation, physically, historically as he lived, was chronicled in order to warn us today. These are warnings to the church. If we were to look at the branches, we would go back to the passage at hand and knowing, okay, if this is a series of warnings to Christians about getting off the path, going the wrong way, the dangers of what that might be, and that you can't get anything better than Jesus, so stick with it. Well, how does that matter here? Well, if you remember, we left off with this. And this we will do if God permits. Now, let's take it into account using a new color today just to help people. Let me know, okay? We don't always have the greatest resolution up here, so if it's a penmanship problem, hopefully I'll catch it. Uh, if you make fun, God knows your heart, okay? So in this we will do, and this deals with maturity. We will do if, okay? Yes, and secure enough to do so as well. If God permits, now, the question we asked last week and we left with, why would God not want Christians to mature? Why would they not? Why, 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 would, why would he hold them at bay for some reason? Why would he deny that? I said, well, possibly. That was more rhetorical, but sure. It's okay. But just think about it real quick. The best thing that we can do at this moment is to back up and take a look at the trees. What is the surrounding context? So if you have your paper, that's great. And that's going to get us eight verses of what we're going to look, like, look at. But we need to pay attention to what's around it in order to be able to run forward nimbly. 
Is nimbly a word? I think it is. So here we go. We're going to start in chapter 5, verse 9. So if you have to turn back a little bit, just scroll back a little bit, it's okay. Having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. You say, this is a terrible place to start. What in the world is he talking about? Well, if you use your eyes and you skim and scan a little bit of what's going on in chapter 5, you actually have this idea of moving into what a priest does. And there's a big difference between an earthly priest and a heavenly priest. There's a big difference between a temporal priesthood and an eternal priesthood. And one of the biggest problems is, is not only does the priest in the Old Testament have to make atonement for his own sins, but he's also bearing out the sins of the people when he comes in with the blood. He needs coverage too. The great thing about an eternal priesthood and Jesus bringing that eternal priest is he doesn't need to atone for his own sin. Therefore, his priesthood that he represents is better. Now, there's a little figure in the Old Testament. Some people have thought that he's fictional. Some people don't know what to think about him, named Melchizedek. And what the author of Hebrews wants to do is say, I know it's brief in the Old Testament, but what was going on in Genesis 14 with Melchizedek holds a lot of weight here. Because that's the type of priest Jesus is. Jesus is from the Jewish tribe of Judah. He's not from the tribe of Levi. Therefore, he can't fulfill the earthly priest role as Aaron began, Moses' brother began, because they were Levites and God set them aside, called them to that mission. Well, Jesus isn't part of that tribe, so he can't jive with the word of God in making that happen. He's got to have a different priesthood and he's got to offer a different type of sacrifice for the sake of people. Now, what's interesting is, that, is if you want to look real quick, and I don't have this up here and I probably should. Verse 7, in the days of his flesh, when he was here on earth incarnate, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And that's not talking about that Jesus needed to believe in himself to go to heaven when he dies. It's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the idea of physical salvation, to rescue him. And notice what it says here. And he was heard because of his piety, because of his reverence, because of his godly fear to his father. Verse 8. So in other words, what it's saying is, is Jesus' prayers are effectual. They work. Why? Because he didn't stay dead. He was raised from the dead. Everybody with me? Who's asleep? I don't have Roxanne here to cheer me now. She's gone. So somebody. Okay. Here we go. Verse 8. Although he was a son, and that son right there is important because the idea of sonship is the idea of an immediate connection with the Father who is worthy to inherit all that the Father seeks to give. It's an elevated position. It's not just Jesus is the Son of God. That whole idea of Son and being the Son of Man has to do with messianic opportunities. The fact that He's the chosen one of God in order to receive the right to rule. So He says here, although He was a Son, now watch this. He, talk about Jesus, learned obedience from the things that he suffered. You say, okay, stop. If Jesus is God, how in the world could he learn anything? Isn't he omniscient? Yes. Nobody had to tell him suffering hurts. Nobody had to tell Jesus when suffering comes, you need to endure and be steadfast and trust in the Lord throughout it. You need to have your nose just focused on him and that's all. 
But did he know that experientially? Had he ever experienced that suffering in bodily form? He never had. And so this was a new dimension of something that Jesus was coming upon that he didn't know before. Now that doesn't do violence to the personhood of God. What it shows is, is that he became every way like we are to the point of God himself suffering because of sin. So that he could identify with you and I in the midst of our suffering. I call that mercy, is what I call it. So by doing so, look now at verse 9, and having been made perfect. Now here's what's interesting about this word here. It's where we get uh, the idea of teleos being brought to a goal, maturity, um, to its, uh, how do I spell, um, intended end. It's the idea of growing up into, when you start a race and you're in your lane, you want to make it and cross the tape. You want to be the one who breaks the tape. But if you don't make it to that finish line, you came up short of the goal. So this is saying part of his bodily physical suffering actually added into the situation where he came to the proper goal that he needed to. Why? Because he had to suffer as a sacrificial lamb on behalf of sins. Not only is he the high priest that gives the blood, he's the high priest that administers the blood in our stead. Does that make sense? Now, I don't know about you, but hopefully that just blew your mind. Because that's amazing to think, not only is he the lamb that supplies it, but he's the priest that offers it. That's pretty amazing. Was his blood perfect? Do you think his offering is perfect? Man, that says a lot about how much he loves you and me. So him going through this suffering, notice what it says. He became to all those who obey him, because they get to benefit from it, the source of eternal age lasting is what that word actually means age lasting rescue salvation deliverance he's the source of it it's not found anywhere else this is why we believe in the sufficiency of the savior to do that now moving on he says being designated by god so notice that this is a calling that he has god's got something specific for him as a high priest, that's pretty important, according to the order of Melchizedek, one that is eternal and outside of Israel. That's important to know. Why? Because he would have to be a Levitical priest. No, no. Jesus is a different type of high priest. He has an eternal type of calling. It extends in a different way than the Levitical priest ever would. And he doesn't need to atone for his own sins. He actually offers a perfect atonement for all sins, so much to the point where he never has to come and sacrifice again. He actually sits down at the right hand of God because he's done. So his work is perfect. This is very different from Aaron having to come in year after year after year. Can you imagine all those lambs? Good grief, there's a ton of blood going on during that time. Not for Jesus. His blood was perfect enough to take away. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what he's able to do. Old Testament sacrifices covered sin. Jesus actually takes them away. He just puts them in that little paper shredder. Gone. Anybody else find some satisfaction when you get to shred paper? Okay, good, good. I'm not the only one. Now, here's what's interesting. 
he wants to talk to his audience a lot about Melchizedek, but he says something very, very intriguing. Concerning him. Okay, I'm just going to put Mel. I can't remember all that, okay? Melchizedek, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain why, since you've become dull of hearing. His audience has a problem. Now, this is a way that you win friends and influence people. This idea is actually slothful. You've come up short. You've gotten to a point where when he wants to talk to them about deeper, harder things that they need to understand about Jesus' priesthood, they're kind of like, that's okay. I don't think I'm interested right now. You know what? I got other things to do. He says this is a problem. And notice that he moves into this area where he's going to diagnose them. And rightfully so. So what does he do? Well, he gives us a little fun causal conjunction here. He kicks it back. The fact that you're dull of hearing for, though by this time, okay, by this time, you ought to be teachers. You have need again. You got to go back for someone to teach you. And here's something we were looking at in verse 1, right? 6-1. The elementary principles of the oracles of God. That's a problem. These are Christians who were stuck. They'd come in, whoever, had not just, thank you for saying this, not just won them to Christ, but actually discipled them. Given them some foundational tools of which to build their spiritual house upon. But instead of beginning to bring up the walls and put a roof on it, they decided that they were just going to lay down on the foundation and say it's done. That's a problem. Very few people walk by and admire a foundation. Boy, look at that foundation. It's so straight. It's so square. It's so solid. It's so beautiful. But you have all kinds of people who just drive around looking at houses, don't you? No? Nobody ever, wow, that house is really crazy. That house is cool. Nobody does that. What's wrong with y'all? Okay, you guys do that. Great. Okay, finally. You have to respond. My self-esteem is on the line. Okay? So notice, you need to be taught again the basics. Now, last week, we looked at the basics. What are the basics that we deal with? We're going to see them here in a minute. Okay? I have to take a drink. Forgive me. But notice what he says. You have come to need milk. Who drinks milk? Babies. Babies. And not solid food. Babies don't eat steak. Anybody here ever tried to feed a baby steak? How'd that work? No, we never tried that. We should sometimes see what happens. I bet the scriptures would come alive. Oh, that's so bad. Chill out. I'm not serious. Okay. What would the ba- how would the baby respond to that? Wouldn't be able to take it. Wouldn't be able to handle it. Wouldn't be able to process it. Wouldn't be able to swallow it. Who knows? But we know one thing, man, that just doesn't go together. Notice, he's looking at the people that he's writing to and saying, you guys should be eating filet mignon all the time. But now we have to get you almond milk. Like that, Laverne? Okay. (laughs) You got to go back to milk. You should be eating steak by now. But you can't handle it. Okay? What does this look like? Ah, I love it. Causal conjunction for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. Accustomed to it. Have adjusted themselves 
to it. What does that mean? It means that it largely stays word on a page and knowledge to fill a head, but the life has not been conformed to the revelation of truth. They probably didn't have a knowledge problem. The problem was is they thought all that was was knowledge and it had never made it to the fingertips. It had never penetrated the heart. It had never activated the ministry. That's a problem. So notice, you're not accustomed to the word of righteousness for why? He's an infant. If all you drink is milk and all it is is that you're reading on the page, and just so you know real quick, what is the milk of the word? It's all 66 books. That's what it is. You say, that's a lot of milk. It is. Let's start drinking. Okay? It is a lot of milk. But that milk is supposed to lead to something. Notice what he brings up here. If these are the infants, if these are the babies, but here's the contrast, 180 degrees. Whoa, stay on there, one. 180 degrees. Solid food is for who? The mature. Now the question is, is what makes them mature? We have to, and he answers this question. Who, because of, bang. There it is. It is the application of the word of God to my life. And it's based on the conviction of those basic elementary principles of who God is, what He has done. I'm not trying to operate in the flesh to make myself religious in my interaction with one another. I'm, I'm changing my mind about dead works. Instead, I'm operating because here's what God has said and this is what I ought to be doing. I'm understanding the idea of my identity in Christ. I get the idea that I'm commissioned and called for a purpose. And I also have a handle of the end being in mind because I get eternal judgment and everything that comes with it. All the principles that are going to be listed here. Notice, by practice, they have their senses trained. That's the problem. They threw off training. They knew it, but they didn't do it. They never allowed it to jump from the page onto them. They never bothered to try to get some of it on them in order to begin to make a difference. And they were a sorry sort because of it. So notice, your senses trained for what? Man, this is a big indicator. Please get this. In fact, I'm going to write that. Indicator. Can they tell the difference? Can they discern? Can they wait out between good and and evil. Is that you? Don't answer out loud. Just think about it. Do we have an easy time looking at the TV screen and recognizing that it, it doesn't matter who's running for what and promoting whatever policy at any time. They're both evil. Can we come to those terms? If we can't come to those terms, you may be on milk and not solid food. You're saying we have to look at politics that way? I'm saying we should be looking at everything that way. It doesn't matter what it is. You're walking through Walmart and you see an advertisement that's posted up somewhere. Can you look at that and go, that's evil? Probably funny if you did. I want to be there to hear it. Let me know if you decide to do it. But can we discern those things? Or do we look at it and we say, mm, that's not so bad. Was it something we'd bring in here to show everybody? Eh, probably not. Mm, I want to think a little bit about that. What would God have to say about it? See, all of a sudden, God's opinion begins mattering the more that we understand who God is and what he's about. And when that becomes a convincing factor in my heart and my mind, I find all of a sudden that I'm seeing things way clearly. Why? Because light only comes from this. There is no other source of light in this world. There's not. 
You can have all the light bulbs in the world. You can turn the sun up to 11. I don't care. Some of you got that. It's the Word of God only that tells us the truth. And if it's the only thing telling us the truth, everything else is a lie. There is no fence. These people had not come to that point. You're having trouble deciding between things that are good and things that are evil. You're, you're waffling. You're a, you're a religious seesaw. Not good. So you've got to get the knowledge of who God is and what He's done in you as permanence so that you can begin to discern and operate in this world recognizing the difference. They had a press-on maturity problem. So, silly one, stay there. Mm. Frustrate me all over the place. Forget it. Okay. Therefore. That's what it's there for. Why is the therefore therefore? What is it? What? Ah! And it won't come off. Look, look at that. Satan, okay? <laughs> therefore. Therefore what? Because they needed milk again. And they should have been at the meat stage. We now have a problem. How do you deal with it? Leaving the elementary teaching about Christ. Let us press on to maturity. This is the point, okay? Now understand, when he says leaving those elementary principles, that doesn't mean you're done with that, abandon them. That's not what it's saying. Just like you would have a foundation and put a house up on top of that, the foundation still matters. It's crucial to how everything on top stands. So you don't neglect that or abandon it in any way. But it's not going to be the main thing that a lot of people are going to look at whenever they see you. It's how you choose to build upon the foundation that pours out of that. Let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance of works, faith to God, or B, good grief, look where I'm at. Faith toward God, we covered this last week. You can look at it last week if you missed it. Instructions on washing, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Have those things down. That's everything that is the broad spectrum of the Word of God. And another interesting thing to think about. In the Hebrews' time, at the time that these Jewish Christians had this, all they had was the Old Testament. So that means that the Old Testament is sufficient enough to speak to all six of these matters. We ever thought about that before? Remember Jesus' interaction with Martha and Mary? He said, where were you? How come you weren't here? Lazarus died. He said, your brother will rise again. He says, I know, Lord, that he will rise in the resurrection. I'm sitting there thinking, where in the world did she get that from? That's 1 Corinthians 15. No, 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 no. She was an astute Jew who understood her Old Testament. And she understood the idea that there is a resurrection for every single person. She got it. She knew it. Where'd she get it from? Old Testament. It's there. So this we will do. The maturity we will do if God permits. Here's the question. Why would God not permit this? We're finally into our sermon. What do we start with? For in the case of, now watch, in the case, now, now immediately think about this, a possible instance. Everybody see that? For in the case of those, keep them in mind, who have once been enlightened, there's something that's designated about them. 
Have you come across the information about the Lord Jesus Christ? If that's the sake, it's because God sent out a rescue party for the lost. And so you've either been drawn to Christ by his crucifixion, of which he said, when I'm crucified, I will draw all men unto myself. When I'm raised up, I will do that. Is it the fact that the Holy Spirit has come along through sin, righteousness, and judgment in order to call us to account because he resides in other people? Is it the fact that you've heard the preaching of the word of God or the sharing of the gospel of which faith comes through hearing and hearing the word of Christ? Those are three ways off the top of my head that God has already gone out in a search party to try to bring the lost to himself by making that information known so he's already got grace pouring forward and going after us he's a pursuing god he doesn't want anyone to go to hell he's very serious about it okay so he has sent out supernatural ways to make that happen those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift now we're going to talk more about what that what means later you might understand that, okay, the idea that I have salvation and there's a lot of benefits of it. Maybe it's the fact of security of salvation. You can't grow if you're not assured of your salvation. Once you have it, you can never lose it. Once saved, always saved, yes. But that'll make people live carnally. No, I've never had somebody say, because I'm secure, I'm gonna go out and do whatever I want to. Not one person has ever come across me to say that. I've heard a lot of people say, thank Jesus that he saved me to the uttermost. That's a proper response. I've never had anybody say, you know what, I'm going to go down to the family-friendly liquor store and purchase something. I had somebody tell me one of the liquor stores here was family-friendly one time. I was like, cool, I'm taking the kids, let's go. I don't know. <laughs> Strange. But anyway, the heavenly gift, the fact that you're probably securing your salvation, not understanding exactly what that means, but maybe it's just the gift of salvation. But notice, also I've been partakers of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he indwells. And this word partakers, important word, metakoi. And it's the idea to be partners in something. It's the idea of having a share in something. The time that it's used outside of Hebrews is the idea of Peter, John, and James all sharing together, metakoi, being partners or partakers or companions in a fishing business. It's the idea of having a share in something. We're actually sharing in the Holy Spirit. So A... B, C, notice the next one, and have tasted the good word of God. That scripture actually is beneficial to us. It's not just words on the page, but it actually is something that produces supernatural living in us. Now, real quick, this tasted. For those people who say, you know what, these are people who weren't really Christians. They were just kind of acting like Christians. I don't know if I want to act like a Christian. That's so strange to me when people bring this argument up. But they'll say, what it is, this whole tasting of the Word of God was kind of like when you see on CSI where they're like, tasting cocaine? No. This is the exact same word in Hebrews 2.9. Jesus Christ tasted death for everyone. Aren't you glad he didn't just kind of cocaine taste for your salvation? I sure am. So that argument is dumb, okay? D-U-M, dumb. It's totally dumb. So notice this. Have tasted the good Word of God, Scripture's benefits, and... The powers of the age to come. Of course, this is going to be supernatural. And this is going to be your D and your E here of things going on. Of course, it's going to be supernatural, but it's not only that. It's incredible. Why is that? Because it's actually this. You think our world needs a little bit of that right now? Okay, so notice. Let's back up and let's think about this. Okay, here we go. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened have tasted the heavenly gift, have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, 
have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Pause. Does everybody notice that this is all about experiencing the supernatural? Does everybody see that? It's not just hearing the gospel and coming into faith and being born again. That is supernatural. It's not necessarily something that you feel whatsoever. But it's the idea of coming into a deeper experiential knowledge of the things of God. So this is a growing, maturing thing. Now remember, what's our subject? Let's leave those elementary principles behind. Let us press on to maturity. And here's what needs to go on. Why would God not let that happen? Well, in the case of those who are maturing, that's what he's saying here. Verses four and five. I actually wrote it on the side of my little paper right here. One who is maturing right there. Four and five are those people. In the case of people who would be in a maturing, thriving, growing, experiential relationship. Now watch this. And then, after all of that, and that is A through E, have fallen away. They abandon the faith. They leave the Lord. They throw their hands up and say, I'm done. Usually it's in a major sinful situation. That's what we're going to see in two weeks is how does Scripture interpret Scripture. The Scriptures actually tell us. But it's a situation where they have this amazing, blossoming, growing, thriving, incredible, beautiful relationship with the Lord that is just Going up, fellowship is happening all over the place. And then something happens where they turn their back on the Lord. Anybody like it when they have somebody turn their back on you? No, never. It's never a pleasant thing. And then those have fallen away. Sorry, and then have fallen away. It is impossible. What does this word mean? I tell you what, look down at verse 18 of chapter 6. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Exact same word. Everybody see that? How likely is God to lie? Zero. It is impossible. That's exactly what this means here. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance. That strike you? Is the writer of Hebrews playing around? Not at all. In fact, for some of us, this makes us a little nervous. Pause for a second. You cannot lose your salvation. You have eternal life forever because of the work of Jesus. It is never based on your performance of how well you're doing or if you're not doing. It's never based on that. He never leaves. He never forsakes. So if that's immediately what comes to our minds, get it out right now because it doesn't gel with anything else in Scripture. So that can't be the case here. Okay? But if you've fallen away, it's impossible to renew. One of the problems we have is this right here is known as a hapax legomena. And what that is, is it's a fancy Jeopardy word for the idea of it's the only time it ever occurs in Scripture. It's the only time that word ever pops up. So it's difficult because you can't sit there and go, well, the author in Luke uses it here, and then Acts uses it here, and then Galatians uses it here. You can't do that with this word. It's not used anywhere else, and that becomes a problem. However, what it means, the basic that they can find out of anything that they search of, is it means the idea of renew, and that's exactly how it's translated. So we don't have anything else to go on with it. Renew them again, okay? Again is back to another place. 
to repentance. What does repentance mean? A change of mind. It's having the mind change. Why? Here's the reason why. Because having that fellowship, growing, thriving, amazing, exploding relationship with Jesus and to be blossoming up like that and then to sit here and turn your back on Him, you would be, again, crucifying to yourself the Son of God. Don't you think one time on the cross was enough? By your very actions in that situation, you're saying His first time on the cross is not good enough. We actually need to crucify Him again in order to get me into a better light with Him. Does that sound serious? It sounds heavily serious. It's weighty. Good grief, what in the world's He getting at? But notice, that's not the only thing. And put Him to an open shame. Or in Old Testament terms, think of it this way. Profaning God's name. It's because of my name I'm going to do this amongst all the people. Not because of you, Israel. All the things that you've done, Israel, has caused me to be blasphemed amongst the nations. But because I'm going to uphold the righteousness of my name. Go through Ezekiel. You find it everywhere. I'm going to do this. And a situation for somebody to be in a thriving, growing fellowship with the Lord and to fall away, what happens? It's like killing Jesus all over again. Him being naked, hanging on the cross, people gambling for his clothes, hurling insults, spitting upon him, hating him, and he's bleeding everywhere. It's like doing that again. That's how serious God sees this. Now here's what's interesting. He gives us an illustration. And that's exactly what this is. It's important to pay attention to what it is. Okay? So if you need to mark it here. An illustration for, thank you, writer of Hebrews, for not just leaving us there. Now watch this. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it. Okay? We have a, a piece of, everybody use your, your image, you know, in your, in your projector in your mind. We have a field. Okay? Look what it says. It brings forth vegetation. That is the produce or the production. Okay? And notice that it's useful to those for whose sake it was tilled. In other words, it's not just for you, it's for others. Okay? That's a good thing. It's spilling over to everybody and everybody gets to benefit from it. What happens? The result is to receive a blessing from God. It's like you are a field. Is God constantly pouring His rain out on it? It often falls on us. What do we call that? We call it grace. If He's constantly pouring out His grace on you, the field, and the production is something that is able to benefit everybody. And isn't that what the body of Christ is supposed to be about? If you came here today just for you, you're going to leave disappointed. If you came here today in order to be a blessing to somebody else, you're going to be blessed when you leave. That's the biggest difference. Is that Christianity is never about I or me. And trust me, I'm the most self-centered person in this room. So I can tell you that. Okay? But look what it says. But if it, uh-oh, if it, what is it? Go back. The ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it. Notice that. Same ground. Same rain. Same often falling upon. Same grace that's poured out. Notice what it says here. If it yields thorns and thistles. If this is what comes out of it. After the lavish grace has been poured out on this. 
It is worthless, close to being cursed, and ends up being burned. One, two, three. How should we think about that? This is the word adakimos. And it means unapproved. It's also a word that can mean you failed the test. You've been disqualified is what it means. It's like cheating in a race. It's like you were all in performance enhancing drugs and, and, and you really didn't make it. You didn't compete according to the rules and so therefore you're disqualified out of the race. Notice, close to being cursed, not cursed. Everybody see that? That's important. Why are you not being cursed if you're someone who has been in this growing, amazing fellowship, thriving, amazing, incredible situation with God and then you turn your back on Him? It's because Jesus kept you from being cursed because He was a curse for you. That's the reason why. But notice what it says here. End up being burned. Ooh, that's hell. No. It's not. Fire can very much also mean discipline. The fact that the Father chastens those whom He loves. Now here's the interesting thing about this. Don't forget what it says. Uh, Where were we at? Oh, my bad. Wrong way. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance. It's impossible. It is impossible for a believer who's had an incredible fellowship, growing, thriving, electric relationship with the Lord for them to make a pivotal decision in turning their back on him to come back into that fellowship experience again it's impossible for them to be maturing and why is it that not everybody gets to go forward and mature why would God not permit think about the incredible massacre that that does to God's heart and the fact that he pours so much into that believer And because of something trivial, carnal, fleshly, worldly, selfish, prideful, whatever it might be, they've decided that they will turn their back on the God who has graciously poured everything upon them in favor of something else. Does that mean they're not saved, Pastor? No, they're totally saved. That's why God is so hurt over this. But He's not going to bring them back into a situation where they experience that deep fellowship anymore. And this is what the author of Hebrews is getting at. Guys, if you're thinking about stepping away from the Lord because holding fast to the law of Moses is easier, think again. God has brought you so far. Don't turn your back on Him. Don't give up on Him. He'll never give up on you. Even when you're faithless, He's going to remain faithful. But it is impossible for there to be a repentance that takes place place in this now before everybody loses their mind thinking that you're the person in this passage okay look what he says here verse 9 but beloved we're convinced of better things concerning you things that accompany salvation though we're speaking in this way for god thank you for that is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you've shown towards his name and having ministered and is still ministering to the saints they were still busy for his glory see context clears a lot of this worry up and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end it's talking about salvation out ahead and having a sound toast testimony because you're walking in faithfulness with the Lord. Why? So that, 
Here is the reason. You will not be sluggish. This same idea of sluggish is the same thing back at the end of five of being dull of hearing. You will not be sluggish, but imitators are those who through faith and patience, good Lord, give me patience, inherit the promises. It's talking about the end in mind. What is out ahead for the believer? Now, I know we're running slightly long on time because I wanted to get this in. Are there questions? Go for it. Go for it. Possibly. It's, it's not just that they're in the church. It's the fact that they are genuine Christians. Believers born again of God were in a growing and thriving relationship, enjoying fellowship with them, had a wonderful, wonderful, hard probably because of the way that the world is, but wonderful fellowship with them. Yes. I can't tell you that because that's two weeks from now. Because, here's the reason why. Because Scripture already told us about this in the Old Testament. Scripture has already unfolded Hebrews 6 for us in the Old Testament. And when we don't let Scripture interpret Scripture, we get into this, well, they're not really saved. Or if you go to the Methodist church, you're like, well, they were saved, but not anymore. And you can't have it that way because that makes eternal life based on you and not upon Jesus. So that's dangerous. But yes, something came their way that said, you know what? It's not worth going on with God here. I think we're going to do something else. It's an incredible mark of rebellion. Uh, I think wrong, wrong doctrine is the beginning of the cracks that would bring to this, yes. Understand, there's a lot of grace and leeway. If you're somebody who went through a period, usually in your 20s, right, or you walked away from the Lord for a period of time, and you're here today, and you got your Bible open, you're excited about Jesus, this ain't you, okay? We're talking about people who have gotten to the point where they've so completely turned their back on the Lord that he says, I can't do anything with you anymore for my glory. You have to live the rest of your life out. And you can't experience this fellowship, thriving, growing thing anymore. Now, stop and think for just a second. I'm sure all of us can think of somebody in our lives that had an incredible relationship with the Lord. I can think of tons of people. Guys, I've ministered to tons of people. Spent personal time in discipleship. And they have flipped. They have capsized the ship of their faith over some of the most carnal, prideful, stupid things. And I'll go ahead and tell you this. A lot of times, it has some sort of sexual connotation attached to it that has lured them away. Let me do this to help you just a little bit. Turn with me to Luke 9, real quick. Just to help you think through this. This isn't a new thing. I would hope you see it's in black and white. It's not something strange I just pulled out of the text. It's what he clearly says. But he's warning genuine believers about this possibility and why God might not let them permit if they are likely to capsize their faith. Look at 9. Luke 9. Look at verse 57. It 
says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Sounds great, doesn't it? How does Jesus respond? Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. We're not stopping at the Comfort Inn. You might want to think about that and what it is to follow Jesus, that it's hard. Take that into account. How about the next part? And he said to another, follow me. Now notice Jesus instigates this. But he said, Lord, permit me to go first and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as far as you go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. This is probably the one that most applies to what we're looking at here. Another one, or sorry, another also said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me say goodbye to those at home. And Jesus said, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, does that mean that if they're saved believers, that they're not going to be in the kingdom of God? It's not what it's talking about. It's talking about when you begin the process of discipleship with the Lord, His intention is to invest in you and bring you to that teleos, to that end goal, to that completion, to bring you up to the end of which He's desired for you, which is for us to be conformed to the image of Christ. And if He's investing all of that work and time, doctrine in you, putting you in the midst of a church of people who want to love and encourage you, and He's leading you along that way because He loves you. And then for you to come across a situation where all doctrine is thrown out the window, where everything that He's been patching together in your life is absolutely chucked out, and you are absolutely telling the Holy Spirit, shut up, leave me alone, I don't want to hear it. And you're throwing all the red flags to the ground, and you turn your back on Him and go in that direction. Still saved? Yes. Going to heaven? Absolutely. Going to be in the kingdom? Yes. All of those things are based on the work of Jesus. But as far as you getting there and having anything to show for it, you are going to walk around with your pockets clearly out going, I got nothing. I'm here. And it could have been so much more. Had I trusted Him and obeyed Him rather than turned my back on Him for those three months of whatever that might have been for those six seconds of what that was. All of us know people who haven't come back from that. I don't doubt their salvation, not one bit. But it's terrible to see them in a wilderness situation. Oh, I gave it away. So that's what we'll look at in two weeks, the expanse. What does the whole of Scripture have to say? How does Scripture interpret Scripture? Let's pray. Father, these are hard things. Your Word says they're hard things. Lord, I pray that we not fret, we not get worried, we not doubt Your grace. None of those things have changed. This has been sitting in the Word of God this entire time. But I pray, Lord, that we would recognize that You do take discipleship seriously. You do take a walk that is committed to You very seriously. Lord, if we become dull of hearing, wake us up. If we become sluggish, we need to pay attention. Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. It's like you're at the door. So Lord, please help us. Give us mercy in understanding these things. The Holy Spirit is here to guide us in all truth. And I pray, Lord, that we would invest in the Scriptures so that we would understand exactly what the author of Hebrews is trying to tell this church. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.